Today's Avalanche Talk provides education and training for skiers who want to go off-piste but want to learn how to manage the risk so they can stay safe and have more fun all at the same time. We do this through a programme of Avalanche Talks, which can be got online or at live events. And uh, we also offer transceiver training, where you can learn how to use the equipment on how to stay safe and, and on-snow courses in Val d'Isere. So today's session, um, the theme, again, is going to be about managing risk and understanding how to, how to manage risk. So we have with us Dan, Dan Egan, who uh, is an extreme skier, a filmmaker, a coach, and uh, a journalist. So, and he's uh, and just published his, is it third or fourth book, Dan, I think? And, uh, third book. Third book. Um, and it's just about to publish his, uh, his third book, 30 Years in a White Haze, um, which uh, I think conjures up, I think the title itself conjures up everything we need to know about it. Um, Dan's background, he's, uh, he's appeared in 14 Warren Miller films. Um, he's skied in a lot of remote areas um, and, uh, and he runs a ski clinics program for people who, who want to uh, experience what it's like to go, go with him, also to be pushed a bit more and to build, build their confidence and, uh, and their understanding of risk. So, um, so you, can, you can find that at skiclinics.com. So what, uh, what we're going to do here is just ask Dan to share with us his experience of, of various things in life, but in particular about taking risk. So, and Henry's with us, and uh, as you've heard, and Henry will, uh, will join Hello, in the everyone. conversation as we go through. And, uh, so Dan, um, one of the things um, I noticed on your website was it says here, I make my living by doing all the things that my parents taught me to do by the age of 10. Skiing, sailing and soccer have been the mainstays in my life. My parents focused on teamwork, independent thinking and self-responsibility. Um, so do you, do you want to talk a bit about how, that, how those experiences were formative in, uh, in you being able to, to take the risks and achieve the things that you have? Yeah, it's uh, great to be here with Henry and you, Chris, and hi to everybody uh, who's joining. It's nice to see a cross-section of uh, uh, my professional friends and my school friends from and, and good time life friends, uh, as well as, you know, all the mix with Henry's group. Uh, I think that's one of the great things about Henry and I and is the cross-section of people we bring together, uh, and we do it through our Boston roots. Um, you know, as a kid growing up just outside the city of Boston, um, seven kids in my family, my mom's strategy uh, to, was just to get everybody outside every day. You just, you just get out, get out of the house and uh, make sure you're home for dinner. Uh, that really was the only rule. So there was a lot to be explored. And, um, you know, like I said in that statement, learning how to, uh, you know, sail, with my dad in the Boston Harbor. Uh, the whole family skied. Um, my parents were skiers, but we, we weren't what I would call a ski family in that we didn't own any place up north. We, we just skied out of, out of our house down the little hill that we lived on uh, and eventually joined a ski club and, and went north up to New Hampshire and Vermont. Uh, and of course, played soccer, team sports. And, and those three things really actually four things the fact that my parents were hey get out of the house go go out in the world and be home at a certain time um you know that that is the guideline and then the activities that we did uh just fostered a lot of independence and it fostered a lot of confidence because at that time in boston uh you know on the edge of the city going into the city and having to navigate uh, you know, everything that was the city from trolleys and trains and buses, uh, as well as, you know, different attitudes in the city of Boston, very segregated with the different neighborhoods and things like that. It fostered sort of a, a survival mode. Uh, you know, by the age of 12, I was sailing up and down the coast of uh, Mass, Mass Bay, uh, right off outside of Boston, up to the North Shore, down to the South Shore, uh, Quincy Bay. Uh, all around. And 
and really had a lot of confidence in the things I did. So, you know, when it came to finding employment, I just searched in the direction of my passions, uh, soccer coach, uh, sailing, um, skiing. And from that, there were offshoots, productions and films and books, but mainly that was the main driving point. Okay. And uh, so, and, and, how, and how did that lead into um, the extreme, extreme skiing experiences? How did that lead you into, uh, into the film work with Warren Miller, for example? Well, with the Warren Miller work, uh, my older brother, John, was six years older, and he had moved out of the house uh, uh, right after high school to become a ski bum up in Sugarbush, Vermont, and uh, was basically Warren back then used to go to the different ski areas and ask the marketing departments for the local hot skiers. Um, and John's name came up in the late 70s as, you know, one of the local hot skiers. Uh, he had only been a ski bum for a few years, but here he was skiing for Warren Miller in 1978, 79, uh, 80, um, you know, and they weren't big roles, but he was in the film and in the montage. And that was a big uh, effect on me. He, he then competed uh, uh, on the pro level and the pro ski tour, race tour and the pro mogul tour. He's the only skier ever to compete on both tours in the same year. Um, and uh, one time when the pro race tour came to a local Boston ski area, Neshoba Valley, owned by the uh, famed uh, Olympians, Pam Fletcher family, uh, where Henry and I raced as kids. The pro was there and uh, John said to me, he had stayed with my, at, our, at the family house. He said, hey, Dan, I'm wearing my work clothes today. And he had his race sweater on and his stretch pants. And that statement uh, never left me that he was going to work that he was going to try and fight his way into trying to make some money. And as a, you know, young man, a young boy, teenager, that, that had a big impression on me. So through that, you know, eventually, um, as I was a ski bum in the mid eighties, washing dishes, uh, the marketing department called me to ski for the film. Uh, they asked me if I had any ski clothing that didn't have any duct tape. And, uh, and so I borrowed a sweater and a pair of pants and John and I skied for together for the first time for Warren Miller. Um, and that led to, you know, at that time, things were blowing up with Scott Schmidt, steep in, the film Steep and Deep, and sort of the extreme movement. So it was a natural place for us to go. Um, but, were you, you know- Were you aware ahead. of the risks at that time, Dan? Were you aware of, I was thinking, I'm just thinking of you as a young, as a young man, you know, and, uh, and young men are not notorious for um, being cautious. So. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, we were, uh, you know, living in growing up just outside of Boston, hanging out in Boston, uh, the music scene in Boston, hanging out at places like the Rat and the Channel. Uh, we were negotiating risk all the time. And uh, from a very young age, surviving in that in that environment, uh, of course, in the 80s, it was all about punk rock and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, in living that lifestyle on the edge, of course, um, I think sort of the risk mitigation came in first for survival reasons, uh, leaving yeah. the house and being back home safe. Uh, and then when it got to the mountains, you know, the whole idea of risk, we were just pushing the envelope as far as we could. You know, when uh, my brother taught me how to ski moguls, his advice was ski as fast as you can until you crash and then pick your pieces up and do it again. And eventually you'll stop crashing every 10 feet. It'll be every 15, 50, and pretty soon you'll be the first guy to the bottom. And uh, that's basically was our approach. It was uh, balls to the wall. And was the same thing with avalanche risk? And uh... Well, that's a good question. By the time we start making our first movies uh, for the North Face, um, you know, really we were jumping off cliffs and, and uh, skiing steep places that were somewhat in bounds in, in Lake Tahoe and, and, and at Squaw Valley and Alpine Meadows. It was Henry uh, who, uh, when we got reconnected at the Boston Ski Show, invited us over to Val d'Isere. Um, and we came over originally to shoot a movie for a Japanese company in, in the late 80s. And um, Henry uh, showed us around the resort and uh, kind of hooked us up with different guides through Snow Fund and, and a few other places. And, and that was our first real introduction because Henry asked the one question that we hadn't thought of. 
did you bring peeps? <laughs> and uh, remember Henry? And we were like, no, we don't have, you know, we didn't have anything. <laughs> What's that, dude? <laughs> One thing I just want to say also is that you were mentioning the big names back, you know, way, way back the Scott Schmitz and, and the Glenn Plakes that everybody would have um, would have known about that you were you guys were all skiing with the Delarier brothers and everything, <clears throat> but then when you say we, you're referring to the Egan brothers. That was your brand for many years. Was the Egan brothers? It wasn't so much Dan, wasn't so much John. It was the Egan brothers that in all these movies and stuff. And you came over and you were starring as that. And yeah, I mean, um, we, I had to introduce you and many other people uh, to to the idea of um, <clears throat> prevention. Uh, preventing getting caught in an avalanche and and if the worst happens how to how to get out um, and one of the real challenges with the avalanche thing is that is that you know people like you and, and me as well when we're pushing the limits we're kind of it's like trial and error trial and error and you're kind of pushing it see what the feedback is with avalanches you don't get any feedback and if you do it can kill you and you can do like a thousand two thousand times do stuff that's really dangerous and you think well this is working you know so I'm getting to know it really well and in fact you've just been lucky so uh, it's a it's a tough it's a it's a tough thing to uh, to communicate. In fact, it was during that time that I was guiding with you all, and there was a beautiful powder day, and I got you to a really safe place for beautiful uh, blue sky, great powder, nice cold morning, and I was getting in and uh, I was getting really bored because most and I'll, I'll say this for the audience, most people don't know that, that shooting these films is, is, is really quite boring. <laughs> it looks action packed when it's, when it's been edited and everything. So I was getting bored and I was missing out on a great powder day. So I went out with, um, with uh, I think it was a girlfriend of, of John's at the time and another guy uh, who was shooting and went straight into uh, a, uh, the last bit of the Grand Vallon that hadn't been tracked out, you know? So to me, it was like, it's all been tracked out. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna get some fresh tracks finally. And the whole thing let loose. So I'd been really, really been conservative and, and, and talking to you guys about keeping it safe. And I think I was successful there, but um, I almost got myself killed <laughs> during the photo shoot, but I'm um, skiing for myself. And that was the one that got caught on, on, uh, on, on video and then went into uh, National Geographic. If, if any of you haven't seen one of my talks, I show it at every talk just to show how, uh, you know, even the experts get it wrong because of that, because of that reason, you don't get the feedback from the environment. But anyway, go ahead there, Dan. I don't want to steal the show. Well, no, I mean, I mean, that's so true because, you know, back then, the, the first guy that uh, Henry connected us with was Yves Chardon. Uh, and Yves Chardon was a, a great skier. Uh, and, you know, in typical French fa fashion, he would tell us the weight and he would ski along the traverse, smoke a cigarette, and ponder it and look around. And of course, we thought it was some sort of mystery what he was doing. John and I, I don't know what he's doing. What do you, what do you think he's doing? I don't know, you know, what's he gonna do? And then he'd come back and oh, maybe, and you know, all this sort of thing. And we wanted to charge. I mean, we, we just wanted to rip. And, uh, you know, hitting that pause button was really a good thing. Yeah, uh, it I, was on my birthday in uh, in January of uh, 1989, or it would have been like 91 actually, because the Olympics were the next year that we were skiing uh, the Tabla Cool uh, Orientation, yeah. Yeah, uh, and we jumped the rock in the middle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Eve had gone down and set the track and John and I came down and just launched off that middle rock over his head effectively. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was that, was that one, of the, one of the many dozen times he had to yell at you? <laughs> to calm your asses down. So, I mean, it was like, you know, it was like, you know, mitigation for us was uh, full on. And, and actually I explore this topic uh, in my book, White 30 Years in a White Haze, that uh, extreme skiing in the US was modeled after uh, the free doggers of the seventies. Uh, and it was in conflict with the extreme movement, Valensant and Provence and all the, and, and Seldon in Europe where they were really extreme skiing. They were mountaineers. In America, we MTV it. We glitz, we glamour, we sell, we sponsor. Is that what free dog it. is? Maybe explain what free dogging. Yeah, the that's hot a very 70s. Yeah, the 70s, you know, the freestyle skiers and the hot doggers and Wayne Wong and all that. So, you know, I, I connect our roots with that. And that's what we're bringing to Val d'Isere and Chamonix in the late 80s and 90s. And Henry and Eve and, and other people were saying, hey, over here, it's a little different. And different in what way? More risky? 
more adventurous, less risky? Well, more yeah, the, the real the real risk, right? There was avalanche. There were faces that needed to be thought about. There was more planning. Uh, there was more intention. Uh, it wasn't just go rip down to the bottom and see how it turns out. Uh, so th that's where the education really came in for us. Uh, yeah, of course, because there's a lot less... Uh... In, in, in the states and the ski areas that you have inbounds and then out of bounds and of course you guys when filming you go out of bounds a fair amount but you really uh, because the ski areas are much smaller in, in in North America which a lot of people don't realize um, they're they, they can control it a lot more and help you guys uh, point you guys in like you know very very uh, specific areas that they might have just controlled for you with with explosives and stuff whereas when you guys got over here at first, you didn't have to realize that the second you go off the, the off of the marked runs, you're into an unsecured area and you got to start thinking and, you know, and and in those days, and even now, to a certain extent, a lot of the professionals and people who know the way, you know, we sort of assess the situation to have a cigarette, look around and <laughs> well, some of us have a cigarette and look around and uh, and um, that uh, yeah, and it, it, it's hard to communicate the assessment you're doing. And that's actually what we've been doing with the whole safety is freedom uh, communication and helping people like you and everybody who's listening, uh, help them to understand how they can, they can manage their risk and have a much better time out there um, as, uh, as, as a result. And I think, um, who was the girl who skied with you a lot and went to Chamonix? And she described it really well saying, you know, it's, it, it's really good to, to learn about this and take the steps for risk management so because that way you're not kind of leaving your destiny, your life to some random thing that you don't know about. And, uh, you know, and, and um, I think it was Kristen Ulmer said that she was quoted in one yeah. of those films that you guys did. Yeah, pick, picking up on that point, Henry, I think it, it was a critical time. Uh, and, and it was interesting, right? Because, you know, this still happens today. I mean, here we are, you know, you and I have been skiing, you know, in some form or another with you in Valdezere for over 30 years yeah. uh, and still trying to piece together in my mind the names of things, the name of zones, the way in. And if you come around the Fasta Charvet and take the high traverse and all these sorts of things. So when you're first there and with, with, with the guide, it's literally another language, right? Yeah. They're talking about mitigation for avalanches. They're talking about wind right? And the fern, right? All these words in the local language that we hadn't ever heard of. Uh, and then they're talking about, we're going to ski the Grand Valon, or we're going to go, you know, you know, to, to Palm Paris or something like that. So you, one, you have to go, well, I think we're going here and I think we're going there. Uh, you're anxious. There's a lot of things to consider, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, through that and, and I, and through safety is freedom and all the things you've done, the thing that I've you know, taken away and sort of bring to my clients when I'm over there and, and anywhere now is I always tell them where we're going and why we're going there and mm -hmm. how we're getting there, which lift we're on, you know, like give more information to kind of calm their anxiety about where we're going and why, yeah. you know, and that's a great act. Go ahead. No, no, but I mean, that's, I'll it's, a great it it's going to be great or, you know, something, but yeah, go ahead. It's a great exercise because if you force yourself in a position of leading people around uh, as, a, as an off-piece guide, whether you, if you force yourself in the position explaining why, then you know, you're, you, you, you're not skipping that because a lot of times when, uh, and, and a lot of professionals as well as very experienced people do get into trouble um, because they miss very kind of, either it's been called obvious clues or, 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 or signs of danger after the, 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 the accident has happened. Uh, if it happens, it, people are often saying, well, gosh, they should have known better. Well, they did know better. They just weren't applying their experience and their knowledge at the time. And one of the ways we've found with the, with the framework uh, that we've developed for, um, for helping people to have a good time out in the mountain and, and reduce uh, the, the risk of accident is that you, you, know, you, you force yourself to go through that, that, that process and, and explaining why to yourself and, and is, is great, but it's much better to verbalize it to a group and also have a, you know, even someone who doesn't really know the area, but have them a bit as a co-pilot. You know, we, both of us, and I've seen you over the years, much more open to, uh, to answering questions from someone in the group rather than just like thinking of, you know, this, this, he doesn't, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll talk about it at lunch. <laughs> That's what, like what you, what we used to do. Yeah. But I mean, I, and also, you know, it's interesting because, you know, that experience of not being known or kept in the dark 
because you didn't know the magic sauce, you know, was really alienating and added to the anxiety of the group. Yeah. And so sharing that information, uh, you know, I've seen Andreas and Wayne and you and so many others, Chris, you know, do that right with your groups. Uh, yeah. And I really take, take, take that on to say, okay, one, I tell my groups, we're going to have a great day. And I never tell them why, because I, I don't want to get pigeonholed into finding powder or finding something. I just say, we're going to have a great experience. And then two, I start to explain about where we're going and what we're going to do when we get there. Uh, we're doing this trail because I'm prepping you to go up to that peak. Yeah. So pay attention now because you're going to need it then. And by bringing them into the fold for the map of the day, the pacing of the day, the route of the day, they have a greater purpose in what we're going to achieve. Yeah. And I think having that, setting the intention, the intention is we're going to have a great day. Then backfilling the intention with, this is what we're doing and this is where we're going. Now, getting to the point where everybody has a great day, there's a clearer path. Yeah. How do you assess their tolerance for risk, Dan? Well, it's a good question. So, you know, I, I use the performance diamond, uh, which is sort of, why are you here with me? Why did you, why did you stumble upon skiing with me, right? Um, and once I find out their purpose, they want to keep up with their kids. They've always wanted to ski this run. They want to get better at a certain thing. Once I understand their purpose, I'll ask them a series of questions. The first question I'll ask them is, how often do you ski? Well, now I'm going to learn about their commitment. They want to go ski the big Kular at Big Sky, but they haven't skied all year or it's their 20th day. Now I know their commitment towards that goal. Then I'll ask them a question. Describe your ski, your favorite ski run to me. And I'll listen for the emotion. How much do they love this? What is their passion? What are they, the words they give me, I'm gonna pat, I'm gonna mirror back to them when I explain something. So I understand what they hear. I listen to what they say, I say it back to them and it resonates. If somebody explains skiing in a technical term, I'll aim my technique at the tech technical. If it's like me, I'm a, I love the way it feels. I will bring emotion into that discussion. And the last thing I do is technique because I wanna know why they're here, how committed they are, how they feel about it, and then I adjust what we learn. Most, a lot of people come in with what they learn first and it could be totally off the mark for what their purpose is. So by using this, this what I call the, and what, what we'd call my friends and I, the performance diamond, starting with purpose, heading to commitment, understanding of emotional attachment, and then tailoring the technique, I'm able to see what their tolerance of risk is. If they're really committed and they're a really dedicated skier or they have time restraints and they haven't skied too much, but they'd like to achieve this goal and they love it, I can help them. And I can set the expectations for, hey, you might have to side slip in this section. You know, you're not ready to turn here, so be really safe. And I can kind of tailor that instruction in. Because that, I guess that's one of those things with risk management, isn't there, is, is what level of risk are you willing to take? Um, yeah. and, uh, and what you described there is you're trying to work out where, where this person's gonna be comfortable or, or even maybe where they're gonna be uncomfortable because maybe that's where you wanna go. But, uh, yeah, I wanna understand their expectations and, and their level of risk. And then I'll be addressing that risk in my conversation with them. One is, you know, I stay away from uh, the negative mind. I don't, I don't go into any discussion that has judgment. It's a cold day. I don't, I don't, I don't mention it. The snow's not great. I don't talk about it. See, I don't want to interject any sort of anxiety or negative thought. I'll, you know, I, I may always make the standard joke. How can snow be bad? <laughs> it can't be, right? Uh, and that's why I open up with, we're going to have a great day. I don't say we're going to have a great powder day. I say, we're going to have a great day. Now, if we find powder, right, Henry, it's a bonus. Yes. Yeah, it's great. Can you can you do a quick summary of your uh, don't be a powder snob? I still want to get that clip from you. Well, you know, it's true because some people will say, you know, you know, here in the East Coast where I grew up, 
you know, if it's two inches, we call it a powder day. Somebody else might call it dust on crust, right? Um, if you're in Val d'Isere and you're heading off down the, you know, uh, you know, down the Grand Vallon and it's untracked, like, okay, now you're really having a great powder day. Uh, Henry and, and Wayne and Andreas, they don't really want to cross tracks. I'm like a little different there. I'm like, there's a pillow of snow that's untracked. I'm going in it, right? So, you know, we, we bring that American, like if it's not tracked somewhere down there, it's, it's fresh, right? So, uh, and then I'll, you know, people don't, again, going to that idea that I don't want to mess with the negative mind. I don't want to poo poo six inches or downplay or upplay 12 inches, right? Because if you could have a meter of snow and somebody can't balance and they're gonna struggle, right? Um, or so I always say, don't be a powder snob, you know, any, any snow is good snow um, and, and really set that intention to what, what a great day is gonna be, which is the experience. That's it. Uh, um, uh, and, and how do you, and how do you deal with people who are, say, let's very say, very worried about the risk? Well, so again, that goes to uh, the from the very beginning of how I talk to my groups. Uh, I won't, you know, I'll compliment. So, hey, great! I love that brand of skis. That's a great ski, boy. That's for where we're going today. You've made the right choice. So, I want to validate their decisions because in their mind, they're thinking I'm not fast enough, I'm not good enough, and I don't, and I've got terrible kit, right? But you wanna validate those decisions to make them feel good. Hey, you've made a great choice. I love that backpack, comfortable, huh? Right? So you start to move the conversation away from anxiety. And, and then at the top of the hill, I'll tell them, look, hey, breathe, stop holding your breath, relax with skiing you're not at work anymore you know and instead of that when somebody wants me to analyze their turn i'll say stop you know why are you holding your breath like move away from the critical mind and move them into the now and you have to do that because their level of anxiety you know with me i'm an extreme skier i'm a hall of fame like you know you could really say oh my gosh i could never keep up with dan or henry right but but what we want to do is come down and say, "Lo, hey, I, I'm a ski bump. I do this because I love it. And I'm going to share that with you, right? So when you start to break that down and their anxiety starts to calm and people start to breathe and relax, then they come to the point, and Henry will talk about this, low-hanging fruit. They're having a great time. And maybe they haven't even gone to the summit yet. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, Dan, because we, yeah, Henry, Henry's Avalanche talk, we kind of talk a lot about to try and unpack the decision making process to stay safe and avoid avalanches by through checklists, through um, simple questions that you can ask yourself, simple clues that you can look for. And it's all kind of using the system one, system two brain thing. It's all kind of very rational, logical. And I'm, I'm very interested in the fact that you talk about dealing with the, the people's emotional side um, and, that, and that actually probably has quite a big impact on not only their willingness to take a risk, but how well they handle it, how, how well they handle a risky situation or, and uh, well, I mean, it, so I'm, I'm kind of quite taken with it as a different yeah. approach from uh, what we talk about at Henry's Avalanche talk. Well, see, but what I would say is that what, what's so revolutionary about Henry is that he has packaged it for the consumer. Most avalanche guys have packaged it for the other avalanche guy. They wanna talk about their snowflakes and their depth or and all this stuff that I can't understand. But what Henry's done is he has brought that into, uh, hey, where are you going, why, right? So all of these phrases and all this unpacking, mm -hmm. it's for everyday use. And that's revolutionary. I don't think people really realize that, that that is so revolutionary. It's only done at Henry's Avalanche Talks. Around the world, I've been to, you know, countless heli skiing operations. I've skied with guides on almost every continent and it's never packaged for everyday use. It's always some level that you might not obtain because you don't have your certification. 
So therefore it's creating more anxiety than it's then with that approach, your approach is eliminating anxiety because I can understand what you're saying. And that's why I use it. And uh, I was, another question I was going to ask you, Dan, you've got this far and you've been in all these risky places. Do you think you were careful or lucky? Oh, you know, the good Lord, uh, the good Lord. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the centerpiece of, uh, of my book, 30 Years in a White Haze, deals with this exact question because in, uh, in May of 1990, I was involved with a mountain accident that killed over 15, 15 people uh, at Mount Elbrus in Russia. And, uh, and it was led by Chamonix guides and we were sponsored by Degree 7. And it was really a very uh, poorly run trip from a lot of levels, uh, but my 24 year old self didn't listen to the guides. And I went beyond at the turnaround time, I went for the summit. So at two o'clock, when they told us to turn around, the young Dan went for the summit. And I was lost in that storm for 38 hours. Uh, a Russian found me in my snow cave and saved my life. Um, so I've come pretty close to that edge uh, and really had to evaluate it. Of course, you know, as a 56 year old man, it's easy to look back and go, that was foolish. But as a 24 year old upcoming, you know, ski star, I wanted to bag the summit. And so there's a, you know, you have to start to package this information and temper it for the age of which your clients are as well. You know, uh, Henry and I will always see this when we're working together. You know, if somebody brings their teenage kid or the 20 year old kid, uh, how I talk to that person is gonna be really different than how I talk to their dad, right? I'm gonna explain to them, this is not the place to go switch or backwards, right? Like, let's not head off down the couloir going backwards. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I've had situations, uh, I was, in, we tell this story in the book that I was in Chamonix with a father-son team up on uh, the Guida Midi, skiing the mirror to glass, and the father was yelling at me, I want you to take my kid somewhere extreme. I've paid you to take him somewhere extreme. And I was explaining to him that Glacier is extreme. This is a really radical place. And the kid had not skied all year. He was in brand new boots. He was in pain, sitting on the snow. And the dad said, give me a ski tip. He skied away and went into a crevasse. <laughs> and so like the awareness of where you are really counts, right? And so I had made and mitigated our decisions by where we went by not going somewhere extreme. And that was in conflict with their purpose. And did you think you should have gone to the summit? You should, that you should not have gone to the summit that day? Uh, in Elbrus? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that, you know, I think I, the 24 year old Dan probably would always make that decision to go to the summit. Uh, it's hard to criticize that young boy. No, right? I'm not criticizing. I was, I was asking you, you know, and the, yeah. yeah, yeah, I would go. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I thought that would be the answer. I would go. Yeah. So before we come on to other, we'll get some questions from, uh, from, from, if you've got some questions, guys, um, please um, put them in the Q and A, and we'll uh, and we can start dealing with them pretty soon. Just while they're doing that, Dan, I was, what were your three top tips for our listeners on how you manage risk in life in general? Well, what I what I say is, you know, it's it's easy these days to think that there's a redo. I can redo what I just did. And what I always tell people is there's no redos, particularly in mountains and in avalanche terrain. You're only as good as your last decision. I think you I heard you, Dan. You, you have a great expression for that. Uh, and you said that at the top of the Pont Paris on like a 55 degree slope that I didn't ski. I went around. You went on it. It was uh, measure once. And uh, what is it? No. Uh, yeah. Measure. What was it? Measure once, cut once. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a great day, right? Um, yeah. It anyway, sorry really, to interrupt you, but you had, I, I, I don't know, did, is that the expression? Um, yeah. Well, I always say, you know, that's the main point of that is you're only as good as your last decision. So I had decided on that day at top of Point Paris that I was going, right? And, and I was all focused on the going. And, but once I went, my next decision was like, I already knew I couldn't come back up. 
<laughs> you know, because no, you're practically free falling. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, when people, people want redos, I wish I didn't do that. Or can we go back up? No, you can't go back up. We've started down. We agreed we were going down. We're only as good as our last decision. Now, Henry, I've seen Henry do this. I've done it. I know some of his buddies have done. I've been with other uh, Alpine experience guys when this has happened. Maybe we didn't make the best decision and we traversed out. Now that was the second best decision we made, right? The first decision we made was we went and we, we accepted it. Then the second best decision was, it's not so good here. How do, we how do we minimize it? And where do we go now? So, you know, this idea that there's a redo in life, you know, I didn't mean to send a text or I want to erase it or those sorts of things, they don't apply, right? So one, you have to accept you know, it's sort of like the idea here in the East Coast, you know, we sometimes, not always, we have icy slopes and somebody, they want to take their skis off to walk down. Well, that's like the worst decision possible. <laughs> You're skiing, they have edges, your boots don't, and boom, they fall, they hit their head, you know. So you've made the decision to ski, use the tool. Maybe you should side slip down, but walking, that's not a solution, right? So, so I, I say very practically, once you've made a decision, you can alter the course, but don't try to redo the initial thought. Do you think it's the same in business? Because uh, you, you, you've done business as well, Dan, haven't you, as, as on the mountain? I, I do. I think there's a huge application to uh, business and being an entrepreneur. Uh, and, and, you know, once I call it living with, without a net, you know, I, I've chosen the path to live without a net. So I'm basing my decisions off of, I am going to create my own rescue too. Uh, I'm the one out here. I'm not going to ask somebody else to come save my butt. I'm going to make these decisions. I'm going to be self-reliant and that's going to temper how I run my business because I have to self-rescue, right? So it's not a corporation. It's, you know, all those sort of things that come with big business. I'm an entrepreneur. So I don't try to act like a big business guy. I act like an entrepreneur. I'm a risk taker and I'm trying to minimize my risk, but I'm not an, I'm not an entrepreneur who doesn't like risk. That's great, Dan. Yeah. The, um, but uh, before we come on to the questions um, from the audience, I just want to mention that uh, uh, to, uh, Henry's, uh, this, this is brought by Henry's Avalanche Talk and we have been doing a number of things to help people. So right now there are some, uh, some some talks being done online sponsored by autobox you can find the details on henry's avalanche talk.com we're also running transceiver training in the at uh, in uk locations where the uh, current government rules allow in sandbanks and in wimbledon um and uh, which is an opportunity just to get something done and to get some useful training in before uh, before we can actually go out to the mountains and go skiing but also um, I know Henry has been looking at, and we haven't put these on the website yet, but uh, Henry's been looking at some things to support people because it looks like the resorts may permit ski touring before they will open the lifts. Um, do you want to talk a little bit, Henry, about, first of all, I think I'd like to ask you to talk, one, about whether you think it's a good idea to go ski touring when the lifts aren't open and, the, and, and when the peace patrol is not operational. And then the kind of training that you think would be useful. Well, I think uh, whether it's a good idea or not. First of all, if 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 the authorities allow it, I think it's very important to respect the the decision of the authorities. Um, and I'll and I'll maybe get back to that um, in in a moment. But sticking to the question is, I'll, I'll just use Jan's very good uh, analogy: is that you, you're going out there without a safety net. And I'll ask uh, Andreas, who's been following the rules, to to um, type in if he has anything to add. Um, or correct me if I've, I've said anything wrong, but um, we're going to be allowed to, and we are allowed to go um, and do touring. I think um, uh, as, as, as far as pro I know, professionals are allowed to take five clients out right now for a few hours. <clears throat> and just, just to connect to the, the, the transceiver training and everything like that, I'm um, and, and talking with the guys at Alpine Experience and Andreas about putting on some transceiver training, <clears throat> perhaps with an introduction to touring. Um, during these um, unprecedented times where uh, the, the mountain, the resort is open, but the lifts aren't um, allowed to run. And um, so I, I, in some, is it a good idea or not? You got to go out there and with the idea that you do not have a safety net. 
Also, another thing to remember is that the, the avalanche control that they're going to be, they're, they're not going to be doing in most places, you can't count on avalanche control going on. So it's a very different kind of um, scenario um, in and around the resort uh, and, and, and getting, um, moving beyond the, the, the piece and going further off piste. I mentioned that the, the ski areas aren't, uh, aren't con controlled and it's, the unsecured areas are literally start right next to the marked piece. We're not going to have the effect of skier compaction, which is it plays a huge, huge role in stabilizing the snowpack all over the mountain. Once you have not just a few hundred, but once you get the sort of tens of thousands of people going on down the classic runs, that really um, uh, packs down the snow. And once again, you, just about every year, we have a weak layer that's developing. And, um, and now on north faces, uh, especially northish faces, uh, sort of above 2,300, 2,400 meters, there's a really weak layer in place that gets packed down by a lot of people um, or purged uh, by people setting them off and going from rides, whether they live or not is another, another thing. Um, but that's not going to be happening now. So it's going to be um, like what we refer to as a, a virgin snowpack that gets a lot of professionals, um, uh, catches them out um, in, in, in early December. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of very experienced people and professionals who uh, go down their favorite uh, route um, and uh, like they did in March uh, the year before, but it's, it, it hasn't been subject to skier compaction. So boom, in a place that usually doesn't go, um, they get caught by surprise. And that, that fits in also with this idea of uh, no low feedback from the environment. Even when a slope is unstable, um, it, it does an avalanche and the skier compaction uh, does play a big role and we won't have that benefit. Um, I think Andreas is something. Um, yeah. Uh, Sorry, uh, you made the point now, Henry. Yeah. Okay, they're good. Andreas made the, <laughs> okay. Anything else, Andreas? Um, do you know what specifically individuals on their own without a guide uh, can do, Andreas? If you can uh, type, type that in, are they allowed to go out right now or is it after the 15th? Because I know we are allowed as professionals to take people out on the mountain before the 15th. The other thing I think that might affect people, though, is the familiarity curse. Um, whereas if you're on an area that's normally a piste, so you're going down the Arcel, say, or something, you know, and, uh, um, and you're used to the fact that it's, it's completely protected when you, when you go down there. And, yeah. and if, you, if you do that now... You have to put your off-piste avalanche awareness hat on, don't you? Because yeah, yeah. Well, um, that's, that's right. The rescue's not going to be in. Just going down the ourselves. And uh, yeah. the rescue's I mean, not going to be in there that quickly. Can we give Andreas about uh, uh, one minute to uh, to explain what the deal is with the? Because he's been following the the laws and the the, yeah, the ebbs and flows of changes. Bring him in. Can he can he come in? And uh, while while we're doing that, Dan, we've got a question here. Um, do you have any tactics for when your skis get whisked away by a slide? Yeah, don't let them get whisked away. It's a great question. So, um, you know, people don't think often about this, but the the, uh, the ski shop, of course, Andreas, so good to see you. Uh, come on now, where's your photo, buddy? Um, you know, of course, the ski shop is not setting your, your uh, binding for these conditions. Uh, so a ski that comes off is a dangerous situation right you don't want the ski to stay on long enough to get hurt but you don't want the ski to come off prematurely uh, of course if there was an avalanche the best thing would be to have that ski off your foot because it would suck you down uh, right. and if there was an avalanche losing your ski would be would be an okay result if you had your life right that wouldn't be the worst situation but in general uh if you're looking for your ski in powder while skiing I would say you probably didn't have your binding quite turned up enough uh, because the last thing anybody wants to do is be searching for their ski on a powder day. Uh, you know, powder straps uh, and the, the sort of bright orange streamers that come off the skis, those work well for trying to locate your ski. But in general, if you're skiing powder, uh, you might want to turn them up uh, a notch or two. Definitely. Uh, they'll still come off on a slide. It, most skis, even when they're cranked in a big fall or something like a slide, they'll come off. If you feel your skis haven't come off, but you feel yourself being taken. I think that's maybe the question too, is that if you're being question, taken so. away by the avalanche, my, my re quick response is just pray, but you go ahead and... Well, I mean, you know, if, if the skis are on your feet and, you know, depending, everything is situational. Uh, if you can 
you know, kick your arm and kick your feet and, and be directional with the ski, the ski is going to help you be directional. If it's picked up speed and you have lost the control of any directional and you're in a free fall, uh, getting those skis off, uh, you, you have to pray that the twist or you, there's no real, there's no way you'll have the presence of mind to try and get out of your ski in that situation. Yeah. This is why we talk about escape routes uh, as a last resort. Um, you're not going to be able to outrun an avalanche like these people on YouTube and everything. And uh, heading straight down to the side before it breaks up and your skis get whisked away is the last, uh, the last resort. Of course, prevention is the most important thing, uh, not letting that happen in the first place. But once you get taken, it's, it's like a beast that's grabbed you. And the best way I've heard it described is it, uh, and I think it was when I was skiing with you with a clinic down in uh, Portillo, Chile, uh, Danny. Um, the guy, he, he said he described what it was like, and it was like uh, being uh, in a tumble dryer. And uh, he said he, and, and, and then he said he felt like all his, his limbs were going to be pulled off of his body. It's a vicious, vicious force that you want to avoid. Henry, you had a question for Andreas about uh, what, what's allowed, I think, didn't you? Yes, and Andreas, um, we can't see you, but you are on, um, your mic is on. Can you hear me there? Hey, you, Dan. Yep. Hi, Chris. Hi, Andreas. All right, we can hear you. Yeah, so just quickly then on, on you asking about the laws and the rules, and it's a bit of a gray area for all of us. We're, at the moment, the law says we're allowed to tour as professionals uh, within the French confinement rules here in France. So we're allowed to be three hours away within it's a 20 case still. Uh, so that's, that's what's going on now till the 15th of December. 20 kilometers um, from where we live right, and for three hours. Where you live, yeah. That's right. You're not allowed to drive 100 kilometers to then go 20 kilometers. You're allowed to ski to within 20 kilometers of your house or where your residence is for a maximum time of three hours. Uh, professionals are allowed to go, we just find out today, with maximum of five times because it's supposed to be individual. But since they're paying, playing on the safety sport, a safety factor, that mountaineering and skiing of peace and ski touring is actually better to do in numbers for the safety aspect. Yes. Uh, that's why normally only supposed to do only individual sports now during confinement and, and the pandemic. But because of safety issues, we're allowed to be up to five or six people, one professional five clients. Can, now, can you explain why? Can you, can you explain explain why there's safety in numbers, like four or five people as opposed to just like one person or two? Well, as, as you preach a lot and also in all your talks and and all the rest is in case of an accident you know it's very hard for two people even to do a, a big rescue so if you're three or four people it's a better chance to do a self-contained rescue which we have to count on and especially in these times as you say you know the resorts are not open so the the the, the close rescue the ski patrollers are not working they're not the ones that are going to come and save you uh, so you have to be a few people and know what you're doing Hence, you have to be even more on top of your game and when it comes to transceiver training, probing and even shoveling, that people normally think they know how to shovel, but it's actually not as easy as you think if you don't know how to. And now with no ski patrol handy, it's going to be only the PGHM, the mountain police here in France, and they will take an hour or two to come. Um, so yeah, that's extra important to brush up on your game. It's always important as you preach, yeah. but if anything, this year is even more important. So to come back to the brush up on your game, go for it. Extra important to brush up on your game, not only with prevention, but when you say, um, you know, we get, get, it's transceiver, shovel and probe and, um, and knowing how to, how to dig someone out because uh, without a shovel, it'll, it can take um, 45 minutes to an hour to get someone out from underneath the snow uh, with two people digging without a shovel, with a shovel, and knowing how to use it, two people can dig someone out um, in 10 to 15 minutes. And there's and the 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 the, the basic rule uh, in, in terms of how long you have to live if you're buried underneath the snow, for those of you who don't know, is about 15 minutes. So what that's what uh, Andreas is uh, referring to. If I, if I've understood you correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And when it comes back to what's allowed, we're still waiting a little bit to hear there's another meeting on the 11th of December. Uh, because then here in France, anyway, there's going to be the end of confinement on the 15th of December, where people have been told that they can come to the mountain, come to the resort, but there won't be any ski lifts. 
And I can't say how they can come back on their decision now. People are already promoting ski touring for themselves and for professionals. And I, he's, I don't see how the government can come back and saying, no, ski touring is too dangerous. You can't go now. That's, okay. uh, so that's my personal opinion. They could still come back and say, yes, it's too much of an injury risk. We're going to overload hospitals. But I don't think so personally, and there's no one saying so. So as far as we know, people will be allowed to ski tour by themselves and with professional or small groups up to max five. But as you say, and that was going to be my, you knocked it on the head that it's going to be a very different ball game that people are used to skiing in the Germany. We won't have the same ski compaction. It will be off piece straight away. So it's going to be a very different ball game. So people really have to be, uh, come and enjoy it as we will do, but uh, you have to be extra, extra sharp this year. Uh, Henry, Henry's Avalanche talk. We will publish some guidance on this, I think, in the next yep. few days. And also, Andreas and I are putting together a plan, as I mentioned, to, to offer some transceiver training, introduction to touring, and, and some, some ideas about how to, how to manage uh, risk, decision-making, risk reduction, and crisis management. Um, and we are going to sort of follow and the, one the evolution of, of things to... Put a, put a put a plan together for that. So so look on um, Henry's Avalanche Talk Facebook and one last on one last thing before I cut my mic. Sorry, one last thing before I cut my mic so it doesn't interfere with your broadcast. Is what will happen though since we are in resorts, the ski patrol will still be working. They be they will be that's all over France and all of Europe. They will be damning grooming peace for the future to save the snow for April. Uh, they will be gradually blasting to keep the resorts safe to keep the villages safe. And that's not there for your safety, quite the opposite. It's going to be a real danger and it going to be conflicts of interest between the professionals trying to save the rest of the season and us, they want to go out there. So it's a danger with, with rat tracks, with cables holding up rat tracks and the blasting. So people, if you're going to ski tour in what we call in resort, have to be very careful what the local authorities say and respect those rules. And that's one thing that could actually upset this permission that we'll have to ski tour before the lifts open. Yeah, this this, this social contract uh, between us, the, the people, and the the authorities, and and the and the ski patrol. Thanks for that. That's a great overview, Andreas. And I'll have to say, I was down in a store today called Ovio Comper in Alberville, where the, the 1992 Olympics was was uh, was based, and there were at least 20 to 30 people uh, at the end of the morning getting uh, buying uh, ski touring equipment. So people are uh, even in the local region here uh, gearing up to get ready to go out touring. Thanks, guys. So before we close off, I've just got one question here. It's actually from Andres. Do you want to ask um, your question, uh, Andres? Yeah, I don't know if people hear me better or read it. It's something uh, since Dan, since uh, Dan, since uh, tonight's main subject, it's risk management. Do you feel in your young age and after just a couple of years skiing now, do you still feel that your risk management goes in waves and your confidence and the decisions you make depending on days, weeks, the hours, who you're with, uh, and how you're feeling in your mood swing. How do you feel your risk management? Do you feel quite stable, or do you feel that some days you're willing to take more risks, some days you're very conservative, and how would you approach that? It's a really great question, you know, and I love the fact that you bring in sort of the emotion uh, uh, into that. You know, I, I remember, uh, you know, when people come a great distance, people come from the States to Europe, uh, or in some cases, some people come all the way to Alaska. Uh, and, and you know, you know, they've really come for a great day. You, and I think we all feel that pressure to deliver a great day. And, and ultimately, that's great snow. Uh, a few years back, Andreas, I was with my group and I stumbled upon you coming down uh, towards Ladai. And uh, I was a little frustrated and, and I said, geez, I just haven't found anything. And, uh, and you, you basically said, we're all in the same boat. And, you know, you had already come to the conclusion that I, you weren't going to find anything. And I was, I was kind of still in the searching mode. So uh, that was really interesting to me. I've never forgotten that, that some days you really just have to say, yeah, it's not going to happen today. Uh, but, but overall, you know, um, you know, going transfer transforming from sort of the days of uh, pro skiing 
to, to pro guiding, uh, the focus changes from my situation to my client's situation. So over the years, of course, I'd, I've probably made more mistakes than I want to admit, uh, trying to put people in great situations. Um, but, but in general, uh, I'll, I'll play it. Uh, I don't always go for the lowest hanging fruit, like my good friend Henry has told me to do time and time again. Uh, <laughs> go for the low hanging fruit first, Danny. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tend to step out, I think. I think to overly, I think in general, if you were going to describe my style, uh, it would be uh, tip a little bit more aggressive, uh, you know, and a little bit more confident. I think also uh, in, in, in approach towards how we work with our clients, when you ski with me, you get instruction as well as guiding. And that's almost 50-50. So I'm, I'm more apt to really focus in on, on your stance and, and, and things that you can change more than a general comment or suggestion. Um, so, so my goal in doing that is the better you ski, the cooler places we go. Uh, and so I'm always trying to move in that direction. So I think that's a, just a slight difference. And uh, in general, I think when people come to ski with Dan Egan, they, do, they are coming to look for uh, steep and deep, and, and I try to deliver. Well, I think that's a great note to end on, actually, there, Dan. The, um, it was something along the lines of the, the better you ski. What was it again you said? The better you ski... You know, I, I wanted to touch as you go. before we sign off. I think Henry and Andreas bring up some great points about the snowpack. And one of the things I wanted to bring up about that is over the years with powder skis, uh, the snowpack has changed quite a bit. And one thing that has been sort of forgotten about is the islands of safety and how you read the slope and how you navigate the slope on the way down. I tend to see the uh, older uh, guides who skied on straight skis take more traditional routes uh, and, more tradi and stop in more traditional places out of the way of safety. I tend to see the younger crowd- Out of the way of danger, you mean? Out of the way of safety or out of the way of danger? Out of the way of danger, thank you. Yeah. Out of the way of danger, a safer place to stop. And I tend to see the younger crowd that grew up on wider skis, skiing more straight and more flying uh, with, with a little lack of awareness around that. And I would think that this year, there's gonna be a lot of really, Root finding is going to be the key uh, to all descents. Where you go and why, what section you're skiing and why, and the trigger points are going to be more traditional. They're not going to be hidden like they've been so long because of the number of skiers and the type of equipment. So I think that these trigger points are really going to be the discussion. And then, Andreas, you bring up a beautiful point. Those trigger points might be in direct conflict with how the patrol and how they're the piece, how they're controlling the piece. So there's a lot to that decision, and it's very complicated. And uh, thanks for that, Dan. Before we, before you sign everything down, uh, Chris, I just want to say that um, that there was a question from uh, from my kids who love Dan, and Dan's one. The, Dan's their 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 unofficial godfather to to all of them, and official to to one of them, Katrina. And Jackson and Roscoe, and they, their question is, when are you coming to Val d'Isere? <laughs> uh, I want to come see you guys so bad. I want to come hang out uh, and ski and, uh, of course, play some football, some soccer. And uh, I can't wait to see you guys again. I miss you all the time. And uh, just steal your mom's cell phone and we'll FaceTime when you can. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> that spells trouble. Well, I think um, I've learned something about the emotional side of risk management today. Thanks, Dan. And uh, that's kind of- Definitely, I have too. For me, that was the kind of the, the really interesting new point that, 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 that came up. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure everybody's uh, picked up their own interesting points on this, on, uh, on risk management. And uh, so if you want to, uh, if you want to go skiing with Dan, take a look at uh, skiclinics.com. If you want to find out more about it, when his book's published, um, 30 Years in a White Haze, then, uh, then you'll be able to read more about that. And, uh, and we'll be publishing a bit more information about uh, things to think about if you're in a position to go ski touring before the resorts, of, before all the lifts are open and uh, things to think about there. And uh, a number of training opportunities on henrysavalanchetalk.com. So. Yeah, and I think what I, I'll just be uh, clarify that what Andreas is talking about is France. 
for, for France. And we're based in the Northern French Alps. So um, that's uh, to clarify where, where we're based out of and what, what, what perspective we're taking on the current conditions of uh, laws and as well as snow. And uh, so, um, and I'd just like to say finally, a thank you to uh, Autovox who have uh, supported us in, in delivering talks and helped us uh, bring these events online as well. So thank you very much to Dan. Thank you to Henry. Thank you to Andreas. And thank you to everybody who's, uh, who's joined the call today. And uh, it'll be, the recording will be put out as a podcast probably in the next two days when, uh, when it's all uh, been edited. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks very much, everybody. Have a great good one. Great to see you all. Thanks for joining. A lot of fun. Good see job, See you Henry. soon here. Thanks, Dan. And see everyone soon here on Henry's Avalanche Talk where safety is freedom. <laughs>